Blog Talk Radio. And now, Geico Saving Stories. Russell Burton closed his laptop, having just switched his car insurance to Geico. He didn't think much of it until... Savings were everywhere. My pockets, uh, wallet, bank accounts. It was like the savings were following me. Following, indeed. All because of an innocent 15 minutes on Geico.com. I feel like I'm never alone. Geico. Spend 15 minutes and 15% or more in savings could be following you. K-I-R-P Radio! My title. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right, on top of it. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Don't mean nothing, they know who's inside. 
with me. Good evening. You're tuned in to the KRP Radio Show. KRP is keeping it real with Poggy Miller. This is your guest host, Rocco P. Tonight, I titled the show, What to Expect After the Next Stock Market Crash. What to Expect After the Next Stock Market Crash. You might think that that title is somewhat pessimistic because it assumes that there would be a crash, and I, I think the evidence is uh, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that is going to happen. You could be optimistic and say a correction will come, but it, I believe will be a major major correction. If you'd like to call in tonight, that number is six one nine six three eight eight five five nine. Six one nine six three eight eight five five nine. To start out with, think about before we talk about the stock market in general. Tonight, really, we'll kind of have two themes. You know, one will be financially, financially, what what to what we should expect uh, to experience after the next stock market crash. But also, in general, just think about this. If uh, Just park in this thought for a moment. Wherever you are in the States, wherever you are in the, in, the, in the USA, think about what would happen. What would happen if anything, whether we'd say it be a natural disaster or otherwise, would stop interstate trucking from working? Wherever you are, wherever you are in the States, what would happen if interstate trucking stopped, let's just say throughout throughout a period for a how long? You say how long? The trucks stop rolling wherever you are in the states. Let's say they stop rolling for all of a month. How do you think that would affect you? It, it's it's an amazing thing if you ever go to to a, a supermarket store. You can even do it at Walmart, and the the shelves really are not always full. It appears that way but they're not always full. After about three days, uh, most of the stores would be empty, say three days. If you wanted to be more optimistic, use that word already, maybe five days. Three to five days, pretty much everything would be gone. See, most of us don't live in a place where we're getting most of our uh, goods, the things that we consume, locally. That has been the case in a real, real long time. We take advantage of trucking and the distribution markets, so you know we get food from a lot of different places. Literally now, since trade policies I won't go into literally around the world, if you notice in the shopping market, you're probably in a supermarket, you probably see this produce from around the world. So if if you are in a situation whereby you would get 100% of your food locally. And I mean locally, I mean, let's say, to make it interesting, you know, within a 20, 22, you know, 50 mile radius of your home. Even then, it's kind of, you know, someone has to transport the food to you. But life, social fabric that we enjoy in America 
it is really thin. Yeah, social veneer is really thin, meaning we enjoy a very high standard of living in the States, and I know everyone everyone is not, quote, doing well, end quote. I'm going to get into those numbers a little bit later. But we enjoy a very high level, uh, standard, a very high standard of living. And, you know, we've come to just expect that, you know, things like, you know, you, if you do pay, uh, if you do pay the phone bill, your phone's always going to work. A regular phone, a landline, which a few people have left, or your cell. We assume you do, if you do pay your electric bill, I mean, the, the lights are always going to go on. Well, we assume that's the case. We assume if, you know, you have internet at home, you turn on the computer, you, you assume you're going to get connected if the bill's paid. You assume if you have money, you could just go to a store, however far you live away from stores, and just buy whatever you'd like to eat, to eat as far as food. You just you can get it. But again, you factor in that trucking thing. Food alone, I mean, food pretty much available in the stores that the vast majority of us use. And that's gone. That's gone three or five days. So I say that at the outset for this reason. If we do down the road, and I'm not, I'm not fear-mongering tonight. I'm, not, I'm really not. Uh, if you listen to the whole show, you'll see that. But um, if you do think about how volatile the financial markets are, then combined with how really volatile the social structure is, one major event, and tonight you know, I'm not talking about you know, a disaster, you know, like a you know, bad hurricane or a series of tornadoes or things like that, or worse yet, war. Uh, just one event, like a bad stock market crash, could really, could significantly undermine uh, really how you live on uh, how you live on a day-to-day basis. That could happen. Uh, it, it really would. The uh, I got a. Uh, People have always talked about this is a recurrent theme in the so-called new media or alternative media. There's a lot of ways. There's a lot. A lot of people that have talked about this from different perspectives. Uh, one, uh, let me pull up one article. It's very interesting. J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan analyst. This is a CNBC piece I'm going to read from. Uh, this was this was uh, posted September 4th. Notice I didn't say published. We say online publishing. But it was uh, posted online, CNBC, on September 4th. The name of the article was J.P. Morgan's Top Quant. I like that word, quant. Warns next crisis to have flash crashes and social unrest not seen in 50 years. That's a long title. That's what it was. J.P. Morgan's top quant warns next crisis to have flash crashes and social unrest not seen in 50 years. So I read that. What's a quant? An expert at analyzing and managing quantitative data or quantitative analysis. Okay, That's what a quant is, an expert at analyzing and managing quantitative data, quantitative analysis. Uh, these, these are the bullet points on the story. J.P. Morgan's top quant, Marco Kalanovic, predicts, quote, predicts a, quote, great liquidity crisis, end quote, will hit financial markets marked by flash crashes in stock prices and social unrest. The trillion-dollar shift to passive investments, computerized trading strategies, and electronic trading desks will exacerbate sudden, severe stock drops, Kalanovic said. Central banks will be forced to make unprecedented moves, including purchases of equities, or there could be even negative income taxes. Timing of when this next crisis will occur is uncertain, but markets appear to be safe through the first half of 2019, he said. That's what he said. See, uh, let me pull up this video. Hopefully there's not a commercial here. Hey, yeah. Unfortunately, there is. So we'll avoid that. Yeah, I know. I, I should have. Uh, 
I should have auditioned it before. I should have set it up beforehand. But when you have when you have people like this, this Kalanovic, okay, the guy's 43 years old with a PhD in theoretical physics. <laughs> okay, uh, it's interesting. They said the way the article goes, he's risen, he's risen to prominence for explaining and occasionally predicting how the new algorithm dominated stock market stock market will behave. Okay. And that's another that's another risk that some people have mentioned. And that's this. The vast you know, we keep on hearing you know, we're in this bull market that's you know incredible and the num- the numbers are impressive in the stock market. The question is does that reflect uh, a fundamental core value of the economy? Is that a real reflection of how healthy the economy is? I obviously think it's not. But in any case, a lot of the markets being done by computer programs, by software that's trading. Uh, so that's why they talk about algorithm-dominated stock market. It's uh, it's a, it's, it's complex, but again, it's uh, it's fragile. Uh, it, it's fragile. It's not it's not guaranteed. But let me see if I can pick up the interview here with the expert. Every time somebody said values it, you know, I'd be a rich person right now. No, that's that, that's true. So actually, we're not out of value, uh, get out of the growth, going to value. We are seeing value actually could rally here. We are also focused on some specific market segments. You know, for instance, emerging markets. You know, we think that there is a good valuation proposition in emerging markets. We think the positioning is very light. We think that actually there is a, a quite a bit of short positioning on the upside. So dealers are short, a lot of call options, CTAs are short. So if you could have a bit of a move up you could have a, a rally in emerging markets. We do like value sectors who are also related to, uh, uh, to sort of either a trade or, you know, potentially weaker dollar or some of the sort of sectors which uh, just look cheap. And we what do you like mean? Like of, which ones? Industrials? Well, industrials, are, are, they would uh, fall in the value category. They're not as cheap, you know. But energy? Um, energy, uh, very much driven by oil, you know. So we would, for instance, uh, point to, uh, you know, semis, uh, you know, even sort of, tech segments in emerging markets, um, uh, financial, some of the financials like European banks or uh, regional U.S. banks, you know, like, so you will find value in every sector, you know. Uh, so so, so we, we, like, uh, we like value. Rotation started happening last week. We think it's going gonna, it's gonna to move, you know. That said, we are over with tech as a sector, so don't get me wrong. We are not negative on the tech. Understood, Karen. Yeah, let me ask something. When you talk about value, how do you define value? Is it cheap to itself, cheap to the market? What's your, what's your criteria? We basically look at a typical cross-sectionally within sector, you know, so we kind of normalize various metrics like P, price per earnings, price per sales, price per book. You know, we'll, we'll look at different industries a bit, tweak the metric. But generally, uh, you know, generally we were a bit concerned with sort of stocks that rally too much momentum, hyper-growth stocks. Some of these valuations are pretty high. Arguably, in the last week, many of them already came, came down, you know, so, so maybe we are a bit less concerned. But we do still think that value can have a legs. You know, value usually rally when there is a risk on trade, when there's a strong growth. So we like the GDP. We do think that trade will get resolved, uh, you know, sooner or later. Uh, and we also think the dollar is a bit strong here. So those could also be catalysts to propel the uh, value. So would you be overweight emerging markets relative to the United States? So, so in our asset allocation portfolio, we are overweight both U.S. and emerging markets. We're a little bit cautious on Europe and Japan. Uh, so we do like U.S. Uh, I would say we do like better uh, emerging market, but that would not be a long Because trip. of the hit that, that it, they've taken. Emerging market took a big hit. You know, they're down, um, you know, almost double digit this year. Um, you know, since 2007, emerging markets in dollar terms are down, you know, so, so, uh, so they really never recovered from the crisis, you know. So if you could have a good growth, if you could resolve a bit of this trade nonsense, you know, I think that would actually rally pretty fast. All right, Marco, thanks for being here, as always. Thank you. All right, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kaladovich. All right, would you ra- That was not the clip I thought it was. But, again, he's, he's saying uh, that then there was some technical talk. Yeah, he's saying there's still value, but he's saying yeah, he warns about these flash crashes, social unrest not seen in 50 years. The idea of the 50 years goes back to the 60s after Martin Luther King and then Robert or Bobby Kennedy got killed. That was essentially coincided with the height of the opposition to the Vietnam War in the late 60s. So, there, yeah, there definitely was a lot of social unrest in the States. And in general, as a rule of thumb, 
it's always going to be worse in an urban area the more densely people are populated. But one thing that really struck me is that if you just go with this 50-year thing, uh, if you compare it to that, think about how life in the States has changed in 50 years. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about the technology. I'm saying socially, socially, how has life changed in the States in the last 50 years? To a very large degree, uh, the family since then has been decimated. And you know, I've said this before, if you think about how God has structured authority, okay, there's basic authority structures, family. And then you have, you, you have a, civil or uh, secular government, right? And then you have, I would say, church. Okay? And you can say spiritual spiritual governments you know, outside the realm of Christianity. Of course, I believe the Bible is true without apology. So uh, I would say any religion apart from Christ is false. Uh, and any religion that does not believe uh, in the gospel, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is false. But in any case, when, when you, you look at the authority structure in society, as the family is decimated, it's not a vacuum. Which, which of those two other institutions in general has become stronger, has become uh, the sphere of the church, or you could say broader outside Christian religion in general, or is it the state? And I say very, very clearly, the state has continued to grow in power as the family has weakened. This has continued to grow. So I would suggest that if you go with this 50-year thing, and if there was major social unrest now, uh, it would be a lot greater than it was in the 50s because people as representatives, again, of uh, you know, looking at the families, individuals are much, much less stable as a family goes, I mean, your families are made up of individuals, so people in general are not <laughs> are not as stable emotionally and otherwise because the family has been so, you know, just so de- so decimated over the last 50 years. The, <clears throat> the idea, too, the idea of this, this crisis, uh, of a pending crisis, is very, very interesting. That, and again, this, this story, there's been different versions of this story. So this is just it's the current example that uh, Michael Snyder, Economic Collapse blog, he's got a couple of sites, comes out with a lot of, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good analysis. He's also a believer in the Lord Jesus, too, incidentally. And he wrote this piece, uh, Bankers and tech executives know the collapse of society is coming and are feverishly prepping for it. <laughs> Bankers and tech executives know the collapse of society is coming and are feverishly prepping for it. I'm going to read, read a good part of his piece so you get the flavor of what's going on. I'll break off. While most of the general population has been lulled into a false sense of security, bankers and tech executives are spending millions upon millions of dollars to prepare for the collapse of society. Do they know something that the rest of us do not? Apparently, talk of doomsday scenarios has become very popular at Silicon Valley dinner parties. And as you will see below, having a plan to escape to New Zealand appears to be a very popular plan B among the tech elite. Of course, this is not just a West Coast phenomenon. Many bankers on the East Coast have similar concerns and have also been developing contingency plans. Ladies and gentlemen, they know what is coming and they are feverishly getting prepared for it. Now, to break away from, from Snyder's script there, from his article, position, okay, just because you know, a certain number of elite bankers and Silicon Valley executives believe that's the case doesn't mean it's going to happen. But it is very interesting that some people that are, are extremely wealthy, and you could say extremely connected to the powers that be, you should, you should perhaps say powers that should not be, if they're doing this, they certainly believe. They certainly believe very much that something rather unpleasant is going to occur down the road. Back to Snyder's article. In fact, J.P. Morgan Chase's head quant, who I just quoted, just publicly declared that the next financial crisis is going to result in social unrest not seen in the U.S. in half a century. 
And then he quoted from that piece, sudden severe stock sell-off sparked by lightning-fast machines, unprecedented actions by central banks to shore up asset prices, asset prices, social unrest not seen in the U.S. in half a century. That's how J.P. Morgan Chase's head quant, Marco Kalanovic, envisions the next financial crisis. The forces there transformed markets in the last decade, namely the rise of computerized training and passive investing, are setting up conditions for potentially violent moves once the current bull market ends, according to a report from Kalanovic uh, sent to the bank's clients on Tuesday. His note is part of a 168-page mega-report written for the 10th anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis, which, which, with perspectives from 48 of the bank's analysts and economists. Now, if you click at if if you click on that report, you get you kind of get a synopsis. And there's one quote I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, there's a couple of good quotes in there. Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan, Chairman and CEO. Uh, and if you didn't know, uh, the uh, the central bank, the large bankers, the money-centered bankers like Diamond, they're, on, they're not on the side of the people, if uh, you didn't know that. They're part of the problem. But here's one quote. Since QE, quantitative easing, since QE has never been done on this scale, and we don't completely know the myriad effects it has had on asset prices, confidence, capital expenditures, and other factors, we cannot possibly know all the effects of its reversal. Let's talk about the Fed policy, quant- quantitative easing. easing. And... There's another quote there by uh, by Diamond. Okay, yeah, it's the one. It's the one quote. Jamie J- Jamie Diamond, J.P. Morgan Chairman and CEO. This two, 2016 shareholder letter, okay, a few years back. We will enter the next crisis with a banking system that is stronger than it has ever been. The trigger to the next crisis will not be the same as the trigger to the last one, but there will be another crisis. Okay, you catch that? So he's saying a crisis is coming, and he said, well, yeah, the bank, bank system's stronger. Yeah, we'll see. But he's being pretty dogmatic, saying there will be another crisis. There will be another crisis. JP, uh, Jamie Diamond. J.P. Morgan, CEO. All right. Going back to Snyder. Snyder said, if you visit my website, that's economiccollapseblog.com, theeconomiccollapseblog.com. If you visit my website on a regular basis, you already know that I have been warning that rising levels of anger and frustration are rapidly eroding the thin veneer of civilization that we all take for granted on a daily basis. And he talks a little bit about 1968 again, the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy at the height of opposition to the Vietnam War. When society begins to come apart the seams, many among the elite do not plan to stick around for the day of reckoning. Then he quotes another article we'll look at a little bit from Bloomberg. Bloomberg publishes Bloomberg obviously it's it's an established media organ, it's an established media outlet. Where I do appreciate better Bloomberg, they do Go into more depth, and again, I'm not I'm not saying there's there's no bias. That would be ridiculous, but they do they do go into more depth. I'd say a lot of times with the stories that they cover. This story was called "The Super Rich of Silicon Valley Have a Doomsday Escape Plan," and according to that article, the past over the past two years, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have purchased survival bunkers from a company in Texas and shipped them to locations in New Zealand. Quote, in recent months, two 150-ton survival bunkers journeyed by land and sea from a Texas warehouse to the shores of New Zealand where they're buried 11 feet underground. Seven Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have purchased bunkers from Rising S Company and planted them in New Zealand in the past, in the past two years, says Gary Lynch, said Gary Lynch, the manufacturer's general manager. At the first sign of an apocalypse, nuclear war, a killer germ, a French Revolution-style uprising, the Californians plan to hop on a private jet and hunker down, he said. And uh, Snyder goes on to say, it would be weird enough if one wealthy individual did this, but the count is now up to seven. 
And he goes, you know, why they choose New Zealand? One guy said, it's because New Zealand doesn't have any enemies. English is spoken there. It's very stable. And it's very far away from everything else. And New Zealand, too, politically, essentially allows wealthy individuals to buy their residency. It's very easy to buy residency there, permanent residency. Billionaire hedge fund honcho Julian Robertson owns a lodge overlooking Lake uh, Wakatipu in Queenstown, the South Island's luxury resort destination in New Zealand. Fidelity National Financial Inc. Chairman Bill Foley has a homestead in the Wairarapa region, north of Wellington. And Titanic director James Cameron bought a mansion nearby at Lake Pondawai. There has been a significant exodus of wealthy Americans in New Zealand in recent years, and once things start getting really bad, there will be a steady stream of private jets taking off from locations in the U.S. and landing in that beautiful nation. Of course, not everyone plans to leave. Luxury survival bunkers are also being constructed all over the heartland of America, but they aren't cheap. He gives an example. It's reported that a penthouse inside the survival condo in Kansas was selling for more than $4 million. Another shelter for the ultra-wealthy is the survival condo in Kansas. It was designed to withstand a nuclear blast or nature's worst, but a far cry from what you might expect an underground shelter to look like. There's a cinema, a swimming pool with a water slide, a spa, a lounge, a gym, and an indoor shooting range to keep occupants entertained. But survival comes at a price. Last year, it was reported that a plush 3,600-square-foot penthouse within the shelter, a former missile silo, was selling for $4.5 million. Uh, the bunker is able to sustain its, owners, sustain its owners for up to five years by raising tilapia and fish tanks and growing hydroponic vegetables under lamps. And Snyder goes on to say, Lee can see what so many of us, uh, what so many of the rest of us can also see. Now, to talk to talk for an idea about the idea of any type of underground bunker, yeah, there, people have studied this. I think it's kind of intuitive. It's, it's kind of it's a general observation that makes sense. I think it makes sense to most people that yeah, there's there's obviously a strong desire to survive. Okay, no doubt. Yeah, God built us that way. However, when you get into this idea of an underground bunker, most people don't do too well underground. Okay, we're kind of built to you know, see and feel that thing called the sun. Uh, so it, it'd be very interesting, again, you could say if things were, quote, bad enough, whatever happened, that that would be a motivation for people to stay underground. And of course, you know, you have a 3,600 square foot, you know, luxury, uh, luxury unit with all those things that's, that would make life you know, a lot more bearable than, you know, being underground, 11 feet underground in, let's say, you know, 400 square feet <laughs> or less with not much to do. But in any case, uh, most people would do have a hard time, would have a hard time staying underground. But uh, obviously the, if you take it to extreme like these people are spending that amount of, you know, money to get a bunker here or have one, yeah, getting one abroad, getting one sent over and put abroad like in New Zealand. You obviously once again are prepared. You're preparing because you're thinking that, you know, the alternative would be worse. But I'm just saying it's uh it's not necessarily an easy thing to just stay underground for an extended period of time. It's it's really not God didn't God didn't uh God didn't basically build us that way. <laughs> the uh the piece, the other piece Snyder cited, he, I mean, he cited a couple of them, but that Bloomberg piece was very interesting about uh, about the uh, the super rich of Silicon Valley have a doomsday escape plan. When you read that piece, you see how, and again, it's seven people, but you know they they have the wealth to do this. They're preparing to basically they they have this group of seven people went in on a Gulfstream jet. They've got a Gulfstream jet waiting in Nevada. Okay. It's waiting in Nevada. And they're just basically they're gonna get there and when they decide to leave, 
and I guess they'd kind of have to decide together or not everyone's going to be on the plane. But they said they're going to go on that jet at the point that they decide and then take it straight to New Zealand. They said Gulfstream could get to New Zealand from from Nevada in 10 hours. And the, to think about, again, yeah, the time and money that they put into this, that's what's interesting, again, about that Bloomberg piece. The uh, the Gulfstream jet retails at $61.5 million. So that tells you, you know, the resources that people have, seven people could pay for one to just hang out somewhere. But a jet like that, you know, it's maintenance on all aircraft. But on this particular jet, there's a $1 million annual maintenance cost. So again, just to throw out some numbers, see how how far I mean, just the extent to to which you know, certain people are uh, are preparing, how seriously they're taking it. Now, can you go? You talk about the economy again, and a lot of people are on. Yeah, they're basically they're beating the drums of the bull market. I'm going to make a few, I think, common observations. Okay. Things are rather obvious. I said this before. The bull market we're in now in stocks does not reflect fundamental economic reality. The bull market that we've seen in stocks clearly does not reflect underlying fundamental economic health, financial health. There's a lot of ways to see that. If you looked at the numbers to see how the stock market has expanded, Okay, you can just look at the numbers. Okay, be before a major stock market correction. I think they called it. I don't know if it was Black Tuesday in the uh, 1980s. I think the Dow Jones Industrial Average then was about 800. Okay, so you just you just project those numbers out and say as the stock market has grown, has income pace with the growth of the stock market at the same level. No, the answer is no. The answer is no. The other thing you can look at is the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate. We're being told now, and I'll pull up the actual pull, pull up the actual site, so I don't don't get the numbers wrong. I'm going to a site called ShadowStats.com. ShadowStats.com. Okay, there's there's they basically the United States government, uh, Department of Labor, they have pretty much rigged the unemployment rate for many, many years. Okay. So that's that's they they basically rigged it. Uh, they had made some major changes in nineteen ninety four and what it came down to is they pretty much said if you had someone who was discouraged and stopped looking for work, then magically for US government statistical purposes that person is unemployed because they're not actively looking. So even though they're unemployed, and then they're just that discouraged that they stop looking, and they're not considered unemployed. That's pretty amazing. So right now, the official government stat is saying we're on the 5% unemployment rate. And that would see, I mean, you could argue very easily right around 5%, certainly under. That would be full employment, meaning anyone who wants a job can get a job. The other thing it doesn't take into account is people that are working, but they're working at least two jobs just to get by. So, yeah, you can say, okay, they're working, but are they working the way they want to? Are they working and getting ahead? Or are they working to just avoid poverty? <laughs> the real numbers, when you when you factor in you know, people like that, people that, that have people that aren't looking, things like that, the real the real numbers come down to we're over 20% unemployment rate. Okay, I think Shadow Stats. I think they they absolutely nail it. Again, you go to ShadowStats.com and look in. There's a link on the, the homepage on employment. Alternative data for employment. But I, again, this is kind of an anecdote. It's 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 just it, it's an it's an off the cuff observation, cuff observation, but. Where we are in the states, you know, I'm, I'm in North Carolina, where you know the, it's one of the better places. If you are happen to be looking for a job, you know the economy is better here. We still have people moving in from outside the area, and yeah, you know, that pushes up housing, that helps retail, things like that. 
But in you know huge parts of the states, you talk about places like Michigan, Ohio, you know Midwest. Uh, how many people really? How many people are looking for jobs? <laughs> and again, how many? Once again, how many people do you know if they are people that are working? How many people are just making it as opposed to getting ahead? There's also manipulation on with the uh, consumer price index as far as inflation because they under they undervalue the effect yeah the the increase in the cost of food and energy that's there it's it's undervalued so I think a lot of people know the numbers are the numbers are rigged uh again in certain regions like you know here in North Carolina parts of North Carolina housing market is strong right now okay right now it is strong in other places though again what <laughs> you look at you look at the price of houses, but you also ask you know, how many how many are on the market. You're going back to last to last market correction. You can say last stock market crash 2007, and then you really the effects felt I believe in 2008. They never really there were so many properties that were foreclosed, and we're saying again as an as an illustration in my area, and I think it was like this around the country. Banks didn't put all the properties they had on the market because they know if they did, every every house they had foreclosed, they would immediately depress all the prices on all existing stock. They didn't do that. So I, I do not, again, I think there's there's really very, very little reason to think that, that the growth of the stock market reflects real fundamental uh, financial health in the country. The other thing to look at, of course, which is undisputed, is the debt as the debt continues to grow. I had mentioned before when Jamie, Jamie Dimon mentioned quantitative easing. Okay, you look at how money works in the Federal Reserve. This is stuff they never they never taught me in high school. They never taught me in college. The our credit and currency is controlled by private private banking cartel. Okay, we call it the Federal Reserve System. It was called a system. By law, and was created in the early 20th century to confuse people, so they wouldn't know it was a bank. Okay. The Federal Reserve Board, you know, pegs the interest rate or controls the supply of money. And the fascinating thing about money, again, that they never ever taught me in school is this: the United States had a modified gold standard. In other words, there was gold backing some U.S. currency up until President Nixon was in power in the early 70s. I say some because it was for foreign investors. Basically, they could they could exchange, I believe, an ounce of gold. If I remember the exchange right for thirty-five dollars. Then that that came to an end. And you know, Nixon said when he decoupled the dollar completely from the gold, it was a modified gold standard because that was only for uh, that wasn't for all, all holders of dollars, not domestically. When that happened, Nixon said it was temporary, and of course it hasn't. And when you look when you look at the numbers, that's when inflation just became started to go unhinged from the early seventies till then. Because then, even though it was a modified gold standard, even though the U.S. dollar was completely backed by gold, when they completely uncoupled it from gold, then the sky's the limit. So, the system we have the system we have is amazing right now because we have a private banking cartel that controls the credit and currency of the United States. And when people talk about the debt, the debt, the debt, the deficit, it's a great question. As I think, believe I've said this before on the show repeatedly, it's a great question to ask a politician, either state or especially federal level, and just say, you know, sir or ma'am, it's a lady in office, a woman who's elected, just say, if there's nothing backing the U.S. dollar, well, why is the U.S. government in debt? So in other words, the illusion that's created is that the government could just print all the dollars they want. And that's not completely true for this reason. The U.S. government, the Treasury Department, to be precise, you know, they basically could print Treasury notes, bonds, and bills, T-bills. They sell those then to the private central banking cartel known as the Federal Reserve System. In exchange for those Treasury bills, notes, then they get dollars. Dollars are created as a debt instrument. So we really have we have the worst of both worlds, and that we not only have a fiat currency, fiat currency, 
In other words, we have fiat currency, currency backed by nothing. But we pay interest. The United States government pays interest to a private banking cartel to print that money. That's why when we talk about the U.S. dollar, it's really the Federal Reserve note. That's what it says on the dollar. It's really the Federal Reserve notes. It's the notes of the Federal Reserve. Yet that, you know, the government, the U.S. government has accepted that as our currency. Now, again, that's stuff I never learned in high school or college. I'm an economics major. I learned that years after I was out of college that I knew about a little bit about the Fed. Never knew that uh, the currency of the United States was controlled by the prior Federal Reserve and the U.S. debt is created because the United States goes into debt to the prior Federal Reserve. So the system the system's in place, obviously, and internationally, I mean, all the, you know, the vast majority of banks in the world operate like that, where you have a private central banking system that you know, basically has the governments in bondage. But getting back to the fiat, the fiat angle of currency, historically, it's a pretty, pretty amazing fact. This I did know back in college. Every fiat currency throughout the history of the world has failed. In other words, once people in government whether directly or manipulated by you know, banking interest, which is the case now where the banking interest, the private uh, federal reserve, the banking cartel, privately owned federal banking cartel that controls credit and currency of the U.S. And I would argue those are the real leaders in the government. That's why you don't see uh, a real difference between Republicans and Democrats. I hate to disappoint you. It's mostly theater. When, when you have fiat currency again, historically, when you completely decouple or remove anything backing a currency, in other words, you, you completely remove it from hard currency, remove it from gold or silver, every fiat currency throughout the history of the world has ultimately become worthless and they get rid of it. Now, the reason we've gone on with this fraud so long in the United States is because post-World War II, they had the Brenton Woods Agreement, which established the United States dollar, a.k.a. the Federal Reserve Note, as the world reserve currency, meaning, what does that mean as the world reserve currency? Meaning, every industrialized nation that wanted to trade for oil, for energy, which like everyone needs, Okay, everyone needs energy. Um, everyone needs oil. You would have to trade in dollars. Okay, you couldn't trade in other currencies. Now, slowly, slowly but surely, the U.S. dollar is being replaced. You have countries like the BRICS: Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and South Africa. They throw in South Africa now. South Africa. That's another story. Could do a whole show on that. How the uh, African National Congress government now is going to dispossess, they're going to throw out, throw out all the, just expropriate, they're going to take over all the farmlands owned by white people. That's wonderful. And the current leaders even said, we're not going to, we're not going to kill them yet. <laughs> Talk about racism. But in any case, you, you have the BRICS countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They're getting away. They're trading directly with one another apart from the dollar. So slowly it's happening, and I think that's part of the New World Order plan. Because eventually, yeah, they will, they will kill the dollar. It's just a matter of time. Again, will there will be a major stock market correction? The question is, will that directly really lead to, you know, the demise of the dollar? I think it will take quite some time. It could happen quickly. Uh, I think it will take some time. But just remember that one fact as far as the dollar. Every fiat currency has ultimately, you know, become worthless. Every because meaning any government or that was making that was using a fiat currency, there's no restriction. There's nothing stopping the government. There's no there's no constant fiscal restraint. So ultimately, you hyperinflate and the currency becomes worthless. Again, the U.S. dollar has avoided that for so long because of that Bretton Woods Agreement. Because industrialized countries of the world were trading in dollars. But that's starting to end. So, you know, the day of reckoning is coming. 
you know, financially, the day of reckoning is coming. And again, in in the articles I quote, Bloomsburg and all with those, you know, the you know the seven executives and uh, the, the seven Silicon Valley execs that have that Gulfstream jet uh, waiting in Vegas to make the getaway to New Zealand. Uh, he didn't say anything about monetary policy, but basically says, you know, they are preparing for what they see as a situation that will be so catastrophically bad in the States that they would not want to stay. Incidentally, too, as far as, yeah, if you did have the money to get to New Zealand, it's not necessarily going to be safer there, in all honesty. Uh, I've known, I've, yeah, I've had a friend from New Zealand, and the political situation there is also New World Order. So, yeah, New Zealand is further out of the way, but it isn't like the government of New Zealand would leave you alone. <laughs> so it could just be that some you know, well-connected people think you know, they could pay off. You know, if, they, if they're basically connecting this country, if they basically pay people off, perhaps they say, well, they could also pay people off in New Zealand. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure. i just throw that out uh, ultimately. I mean, as a Christian... Uh, your faith has to be in Christ, I mean. And I, I will get to that, too. And we'll get to that later on as far as, you know, what, how do you prepare? How how are you, you know, you are wherever. And uh, how, how do you prepare for for what may be a catastrophic change? And, again, uh, apart apart from any, any natural disaster, uh, anything that stops those trucks from rolling, three to five days, uh, if you're like most people, if you're getting your food from a place called a store, a supermarket, uh, one of those places, three to five days, there's, there's not going to be any food left. Another an interesting historical example, right now Argentina is getting destroyed financially, but this happened over 10 years ago, and it was funny, JP, uh, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan Chase, chair, you know, he's obviously arch villain, Archville and central banker, a scum of the world. But he used the word crisis. He said, you know, the crisis, crisis is coming, it's going to come. Uh, as they called it in Argentina, years ago, over 10 years ago in Argentina, these are roughly about 15 years ago, um, they, the Argentines tried to bolster their economy. And they had, they had an idea that did work for a while. They fixed the current, they fixed the exchange rate of the Argentine peso at the time with the U.S. dollar. Say well, why? What what would that do? It basically made the Argentine peso as stable as the U.S. dollar. Okay, at that time, and it it worked wonderfully because for for during that time in the heyday when when that system was working, Argentines didn't even want to hold U.S. dollars anymore. They just wanted to have their own currency. But yeah, the powers that be or shouldn't be then didn't like that, and that the dam eventually burst. They went through currencies, and yeah, I think now again Argentina is going through that. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to scare anyone tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. But because things, yeah, you know, God has blessed the United States so much. And you could say, okay, yeah, if you're living in the inner city of Chicago, you know, that's not the same as living, yeah, uh, living in the suburbs, in uh in outside Charlotte, North Carolina, or wherever. So you know he has diversity of life in the states, but in general, when uh, yeah, I was in South America just a short period of time, I had visited Argentina after the crisis. But when you read about what life was like, and I mean I saw some of this down there in the cities, okay, any any house worth anything, you'd have base, you probably have bars over the windows. Okay, there's really two ways two ways then you could protect yourself. In an urban environment normally would be bars over the window so no one could get in. In outside the city you might have walls like you know, a nine foot wall around wherever you live. So that's that was just I mean that was just common life. That was everyday existence. But I remember I remember one friend telling me just how how desperate people were and how creative these would be. Yeah, he was living in a home He's a missionary friend. He was living at home in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, which Buenos Aires means good air, and that's incidentally the most Italian city in the world. Uh, there's more Italians uh, in Buenos Aires than in Rome, Italy. Just so you know, a lot of Italians migrated not just to the U.S. of A., 
but to uh, to Argentina. But in any case, he was saying just how creative these were. In his home, yeah, like anyone else, he had bars on on the windows, but you know, it was, there was small space. So what some thieves would do is they would basically they'd break in. They'd be able to put push a small child through the window. And the child then would go to the door when the people weren't home and let people in. Uh, I remember reading a story too about you know what life was like. It was one Argentine. It was just it was just his experience as far as what every day was like after the crisis. And he said, you know, a lot of people wanted to get out of the cities. And he says there's some advantages because there's disadvantages too because there's numerous stories that he would say where people would show up in a rural area and they'd be well dressed and you'd think that they were normal. And then once they gain your trust, I mean they just they just kill all the men and rape the women. So. It wasn't like you know a lot of people say, well, you just you get away from everyone. Yeah, I think, I think in general there is an advantage to get out of cities for many many reasons, but that still doesn't mean the idea that you're just going to have safety. I mean, safety's only in it's only in crisis, only in God. Uh, but that Argentine, when he wrote that article, he was saying not only in the cities, this again was normal life. He said every day this was the tension in in Buenos Aires that he experienced. You would have to be extremely careful whenever you left your home or entered your home because that's when people would obviously try and break in. In other words, they wouldn't necessarily break, you know, try and break in a reinforced door, but you'd be vulnerable when the door was actually open that someone would then try and overpower you and get in while you were entering or leaving your home. So that was just, that was, that was everyday life. He said people would have would have guard dogs because they uh, people would you know, get you know, just creative creative thieves. They would basically give them poison meatballs to kill them. Uh, <laughs> and you say yeah, you get armed, and of course you get armed because you know the the guard you know the bad guys are armed, and that's uh, that's really the best reason against gun control in the states or any country in the world when uh, the thieves and never thieves and dishonest people. Criminals are never going to obey the law. Only honest people are. So if you want a situation like Chicago, yeah, get rid of the guns and then just see gangs and all those criminal gangs just kill people very easily because there's no fear of the populace being armed. But, you know, again, we've had it. We've had it very, very good in the States. I mean, we've had it extremely good in the States. The standard of living we enjoy now and, uh, and I'm not just saying yeah, that there's a national center, but the social, the social piece that we've had in the states could evaporate very, very quickly. Very quickly. Another, another minor anecdote as far as how the New World Order tries to divide. New World Order tries to divide us in left versus right. And I said before, I say it again: the two-party system is a scam. It's the same agenda. Uh, they do that to divide us. Uh, and the racial lines. Obviously, they do that to divide us, and that's part of why the NFL, unlike the NBA, doesn't outlaw kneeling. And I'm not saying, okay, you, you could take either, either issue. I really don't have a dog in the game about kneeling. I'm just saying this. If you do that, if the, if the NFL wanted to get rid of it, they get rid of it like the NBA. NBA has a zero tolerance policy. In other words, you get ejected from the game. You don't get paid for that game. Uh, you, know, you lose money. So you don't see that, that protest in the NBA. The NFL really has always been tied, you know, very strongly to the military industrial complex. Think about, you know, all these football games, they have a flag the size of the field, you know, which is disgusting. You know, they'll have military jets over game. It's it's horrible. Let's say pro football in the U.S. has been politicized for a very, very long time. Okay, it's been politicized. I gave up the NFL over four years ago. Pudgy and I did a show on that. I made that decision on the air with Pudgy four years ago. But in any case, they do this whole thing to kneeling and Colin Kaepernick. And if you follow the regular banter recently about Nike, what's going on? That's all done because they want to, they want to keep us divided, not just left versus right, but they want to make it a racial thing. Yeah, they want whites divided against blacks. They want distrust. They want that. It's very much what they want. So, you know, that's that. Think about Nike. It's not that they're stupid that they use Colin Kaepernick for that commercial. It's that, you know, they're part of the system. Okay, that corporate, they're part of the system. So now you have, you know, white people as a ridiculous protest, you know, burning their own property. It's, it's, 
they want to keep us divided. But to, to give you an idea, though, just how, how thin the veneer is, okay, you can look at places like Ferguson and uh, in Missouri, you know, people are shot and all. But just just anecdotally, and I believe in Georgia a couple of months back, there was uh, there were four black women were, were having dinner. And a waitress who was white, young white girl, brushed up against one of them. You know, she said she was sorry. And then she did it again, and they start to beat her. And then they rob her, and one of them even stabs her. So, again, they were just out having a meal, but their mentality, they were just so racist and warped and, hate, and hateful that they just saw an opportunity. I mean, they just, there was that much hatred uh, for the white girl that they did that. And yeah, oh yeah, it was, in my mind, it's clearly, it's clearly racially motivated. But then they also took advantage by them. They, you know, they stole tips and stuff. And yeah, you know, the police found them, but yeah, it was a national story because it was black and white crime. But they do this to the virus, but I, I'm saying all this to basically make the point that social, socially right now in America, things are very peaceful, okay? You, ha- you have pockets, pocket protests here and there, but I mean, most Americans' real issues, they're asleep. They're asleep about the private federal reserve system. They're, they're asleep about the fact that a private banking cartel controls the credit and currency. They're asleep about the fact that Trump has continued unabated the illegal wars of aggression in the Middle East. You know, he's expanded the number of people in Afghanistan. It's been 17 years in Afghanistan. Think about that. 17 years. The, you know, World War II is won in like four years. You know, we're living in a state of perpetual war. There's no mass protest. The United States military continues to kill innocent civilians abroad, including women and children. No, no mass protest. No mass protest. I mean, I, what I'm saying, I'm saying is peaceful. I think there should be protest against the right things protest that would not divide us but unite us. We don't see that. We don't see that. We just don't see that in the States. But there's so much pent up animosity in the country. You know, you know, blue versus red states, left versus right, liberal versus conservative, black versus white. And I'm saying all this to say if something like a major financial crash occurs, the social fabric we have, it, it is again it's very, very fragile. It's very, very thin, and we could expect some really, really rough times. People, you know, talk about prepping, and obviously I talk about what certain ultra-rich people do. So you'd say, okay, you know, why am I sharing this information? Do, do I want to make you feel bad? No, I don't, I don't, don't want to make you feel bad. I don't, I don't want you to fear. But I'm just saying there's common, there's general common sense things you could do. Prepare. Number one, get out of debt. You're trying to get out of debt. Don't look, by getting out of debt, <laughs> you make yourself more independent financially. You're less dependent upon other spirit. Think about a guy like Dave Ramsey, if you don't know who he is, okay? Dave Ramsey, shown on the radio, is the, and has been for years, the third most popular radio show in the nation, okay? What is the Dave Ramsey show about? Essentially one thing, yeah, he, he gets a little bit away from this, but basically, Dave Ramsey, his whole show, and the reason it's the third most popular in the nation, has been for years. It's just all about helping people get out of debt. That's all it is. That's all it is. Just, yeah, strategy, simple strategies, time-tested, pragmatically proven strategies to get people out of debt. And that, that idea alone has made Dave Ramsey a multi-multi-millionaire. You say, of course, you know, he's... Yeah, he's blessed. He's a believer. He's he's gifted administration. He's built an organization. I don't know if 200 people work for him in his organization or not. But in any case, <laughs> it's a popular concept because so many people are going the other way. So you get a debt. Uh, wherever you are in the country, uh, wh- whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting or in between the suburbs, yeah, get some firearms. Again, I know if you're in certain places like Chicago, you're in New Jersey, yeah, literally, I know you'd have to leave the state, and there's a lot of reasons to leave those, leave those places anyhow uh, when you look at the tax rate. But you get some firearms, you get some basic training. Uh, uh, third thing, start to network with people. Start to network with like-minded people. Part of the idea of a church, again, is a community of faith, and it's not designed to just have relationships with people once a week if you go on Sunday or twice a week if you go 
on Sunday and Wednesday. It's designed so that people could share one another's burdens, okay? And that's spiritual and otherwise. Network with like-minded people. And, you know, you find out, you build an informal network. You might have one guy, you know, who's good with small engine repair, things like that. Uh, somebody else who's good in carpentry. Because in the future, again, if things do go south, if money's tighter, we may barter by trading skills and services. So if you have someone, for example, who's a good plumber, uh, he may get paid through having someone do work for him who's a good electrician or a good carpenter. So network with people. You know, develop develop some of those skill sets too. See number four, develop some skill sets you don't have. And I'd say most importantly, five, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, uh, our greatest need is not material. Okay, you could have all the money in the world. You could be one of these Silicon Valley execs that can afford to own a jet that costs a million dollars a year to maintain. You know, those seven guys that think they're going to get away to New Zealand, and they might, they might at some point. But uh, your security should never be in money. Uh, uh, in the words of the Lord Jesus, what, what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The greatest wealth you can achieve is spiritual. And I say that with complete and utmost sincerity because someone like Donald Trump, who's the president of the United States, uh, if he's a bum, he's worth $3 billion. On the upside, if he's a bet, if he's a richer bum, he's worth seven billion. The moment the nanosecond Trump dies, apart from Christ, he's in eternal hell. All of his money, all of his fame, all of his popularity, all of his power means nothing once he stops breathing. So that's that's the greatest that's the greatest preparation you can make. You talk about prepping; it's making sure when you take your last breath that you're going to stand before Christ. You're not going to be in hell forever. That's the most important preparation you could do. Because the real division in life is not racial. Uh, it's not social. Uh, it's not economic. It's not, uh, it's not financial. Uh, it's certainly not racial at all. It's spiritual. It's between those that are saved, those that are lost, those that know Christ as Savior, and those that don't. That's the greatest preparation you can make is to know Christ you have to get to know better if you are saved, because that's who you're going to spend eternity with. You've been listening to the KRP Radio Show, Keeping It Real with Pudgy Miller. I'm your guest host, Rocco P. Thank you for listening. I hope to be back next month in my normal slot, the last Friday night of the month at 9 p.m. Yes, I moved it down, moved from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Thank you again for listening to another show to another KIRP radio show. Have a good night and a good week. KIRP radio!